Amen. Well, I'm uh, I'm excited about tonight because we're moving out of out of John chapter one and into some exciting stuff. We're starting to see Jesus' public ministry. But I want us to remember first of all where we came out of uh, looking at John one, and you know, in the first eighteen verses, we saw the deity of Christ and the Word becoming flesh to dwell among us. In the second section, we saw Christ as the perfect and holy Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And last week we saw in the final section of the first chapter, Jesus the Savior calling out His disciples for ministry. In that first chapter, we saw the bold testimonies of both John the Apostle and John the Baptist calling us to look at the Lamb of God as Jesus the Christ, calling us to be ready for what is to about about to come, calling us to be ready to see as the Savior moves from just opening statements and announcements of who He is to actually doing ministry. The second chapter is particularly exciting because we see the first of what we call the eight sign miracles. The eight sign miracles of Christ and John. These sign miracles, they were meant to show various aspects of Jesus' deity and power. They proclaimed the reality of who He is, the reality that He is Messiah, His power, His authority, and that He was not bound by the constraints of this world. He was God even though He was here in flesh. And these eight signs that are found in the book of John, they're going to be tonight, we'll be looking at the water turned into wine, the, we'll be looking at the healing of an official son, the healing of a lame man, feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on water, Jesus healing a blind man, raising Lazarus from the dead, and the miraculous catch of fish. And then, of course, we can also throw in there, along with raising Lazarus from the dead, raising himself from the dead after his death on the cross. So, in these signs, we're going to see his power over everything and everyone, no matter whether it's the Jews, whether it's the Gentiles, whether it's creation, whether it is time. He has power over everything. And this is the mark of the start of Jesus' public ministry. We've seen him build his team. He went out and got his disciples. And now we see him take his message to the people. This ministry will not only include the signs that we're going to start looking at tonight, but it's going to include eight different statements called the I Am statements. Statements like, I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. All these do include to say that, hey, I am God. This is what I am here to do. This is my purpose. It's all majestic. And John records the power and beauty and majesty of Christ in his entire ministry throughout the gospel. And the first of those signs we're going to see tonight is uh, the turning of water into wine here at the wedding of Cana, starting where we're reading tonight in chapter 2 and verse 1. It says this, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And he said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you to. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some water out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tested the water, now become wine, 
and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water did know. The master of the feast called to the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine till now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Now I mentioned this is the first of eight signs that we are going to see in John's gospel. The other signs that follow coincide with the eight I am statements like I mentioned, and we'll get to those starting in chapter six. So that's well down the road from now. But the sign miracles, like I said, they put the full power of Christ on display. They demonstrate his authority. And we saw the first one here, turning the water and the wine. It said in verse 1 on the third day. So this is, a, this is a continuation of what we saw in chapter 1 where he kept saying the next day, the next day, the next day. So this is the third day after Jesus called Nathaniel. Three days later. And it's interesting to note where we left Jesus and his disciples off. They were in Galilee, the region of Galilee near Bethsaida, which was about a three days journey to Cana. So it's accurate geographically. And so they're now at Cana, and they're about to go to this, this wedding. It's likely the wedding had already been going on for several days. Uh, weddings in the first century Jewish culture were not short affairs. They lasted for a week or more. And we also see in this first verse that Mary, Jesus' mother, was already there at the celebration when Jesus and the disciples arrived. We don't know who was getting married. We don't really know anything about the, the wedding itself. But we do know that this marriage uh, involved people who obviously knew Jesus and his family because Mary was there. And as we will see later, she had some sort of authority at this, at this wedding. But there indicates it must have been some sort of relationship between this wedding family and Jesus' family. And I do want to point out, too, that Jesus does not use the name Mary for Jesus' mother. Or sorry, John does not use the name Mary for Jesus' mother. He simply says the mother of Jesus. In fact, in this gospel, he never mentions Mary's name, just as he doesn't mention his own name. But it's interesting to note that he does this because he is the disciple that is asked to take care of Mary at the cross. As we see in John chapter 19, it says in verse 25, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So John is consistent with not mentioning Mary's name, just as he doesn't mention his own, because he doesn't want to bring undue attention to himself or the people that are directly connected to him outside of Christ or people that are necessary to mention in the story. And it's also a test setting Mary apart from the other Marys that are listed in the Gospels. There are quite a few of them. And he wants the focus to be on Christ and what Christ is about to do. But now we have a problem. It seems like it might be a small problem, but it's actually a big problem. We're in the midst of this great wedding celebration. You know, they last for a week or two at a time, and the unthinkable happens. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now wine was 
common in the ancient Near East in this culture. It's what they had to drink. There were so many vineyards and fruit juices would easily ferment because of the, the heat and the arid culture. It was hard to keep juice fresh, so they had wine. And so I want to point out this was not just grape juice. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but this was an actual alcoholic beverage. Um, but they diluted it with water, so they would reduce the potency of it, sometimes 3 to 1, sometimes 10 to 1, so they wouldn't get drunk, but they would still drink the wine because the wine would actually also help purify the water because in that region it was hard to find just plain pure water that was clean to drink and you wouldn't, wouldn't make you sick. But running out of wine would have been a big problem, a big problem, because this would have been a great embarrassment to the bridegroom. It would have been a great insult to the bride's family because as the bridegroom, you were expected to be prepared for the week of festivities. You were prepared to make sure that you had everything that you needed for that wedding to show not only that you could actually support yourself and support your family, but that you were serious about marrying this family's daughter and you were expected to, to take care of all that. And he clearly had fallen short. So this not only had social consequences of just an embarrassing situation, this actually had legal consequences where the bride's family could have actually taken action against the bridegroom. This was a big deal. So Mary, she says to Jesus, they have no wine. Now, we don't know what Mary was doing at this point. We don't know if she was telling him to do something about it or if she was just telling him that this is the, the crisis that's going on. But what we do know for sure, and what we do not know for sure, but we can assume based on the following verses is that Mary knew Jesus would do something about it. After all, Mary would have known exactly who Jesus was. She knew before birth, the angel told her exactly who he was going to be, what he was going to be doing. And because she knew he was God, he, she knew what he was capable of. And so what does Jesus say to her, though, in verse 4? Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, at first, when we see this response and we think about this from Western American eyes, um, we look at this and he says, Woman, how disrespectful is that? You're just going to call your mother woman? It's, we can't look at it from our cultural standpoint. This was not an insult. This was a, a regular address in that culture and time. And this would not have been a word of disrespect to his mother at all. But on the contrary, this would have been appropriate. We actually see him address his mother as woman again. As I read a few minutes ago in chapter 19 at the cross, Jesus saw his mother and the disciple of whom he loved standing by, and he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. So we see him at the crucifixion, which would have been for a mother and son, a mother, you know, seeing the last moments of her son's life. This would have been a tender interaction between them. The final words to his mother, and he says, woman, obviously he's not going to be disrespecting her in that situation. And we see one of the most precious and human moments of Christ just after he says that, when he tells John, this is now your mother. You need to take care of her. He wanted to make sure that his mother was taken care of and looked after. It's not a sign of disrespect whatsoever, but what it does also show, as we see Mary expecting Jesus to do something, 
And he's saying, my hour has not yet come. What this does show is by instead of addressing her as woman, instead of mother, is, Mom, our roles have now changed. I am still your son, but you can no longer treat me as your son. I am now your Messiah. I have my own purpose now. I have my own plan now, and you need to follow that plan. So back in John 2, she said there's no more wine left. He responds, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now this phrase, my hour has not yet come, or my time is come, different different situations, and he says it in different ways. This phrase is used throughout the Gospel of John, his hour or his time, it is used in quite a few places to signal his death and glorification. So we see it first here in John 2, but we see it again in John 7, verses 1 through 8. It says this, After after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about into Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booze was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no, work, no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. And Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast... I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And then later in chapter 7, in verses 25 through 31, it says this, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, openly speaking, and they say nothing to him. Can it be the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and you do not know him. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they are seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Next chapter 8, verses 18 and 20. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Skip over to John chapter 12, and in verse 23, It says, Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him and then in verse in chapter 13 verse 1 it says now before the feast of the passover when jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of this world to the father having loved his own who were in the world he loved them to the end and then finally we see 
in one of the most majestic passages in all of Scripture, in the high priestly prayer of John chapter 17, Jesus says in verses 1 and 2, When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted His eyes up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You, since You have given Him all authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom You have given. So we see in the first 11 chapters of John, His hour had not yet come. John 1-11 through 11 is going to be the public ministry of Christ. John 12-17 through 17 is going to be the private ministry of Christ. His hour had arrived. It's when He is speaking directly to His disciples, getting ready for His crucifixion and resurrection. But the hour had not yet come is a way here in John 2 for Christ to say that his, it's not time for me to be fully revealed. I'm not ready to show my glory yet. I'm not ready to be put to death. I'm not ready to be resurrected and return to the Father. I have more to do here. I have more to say. I have more to teach. I have more to show. He would, however, continue, as we will see in just a moment, that he does indeed perform a miracle. The miracle will show without question his divine power. But it's only a glimpse of his full glory. He's not ready to fully reveal himself yet, for his hour had not yet come. And the fact that Jesus says this just before performing this first sign of his power and authority should show us everything that John is leading up to in the events of the Passion Week, all of the miracles, all of the confrontations with the Jewish leaders, all of the preaching, all of the teaching of Christ, they all serve to set up the events of the cross. His identity, His power, His deity, they must be fully realized to show that Jesus is the spotless Lamb of God that is the only one who is fit, the only one who is able and capable to serve as the perfect sacrifice to take the sin of the world. But that hour, that moment when all would be fulfilled had not yet come. But we must also note that this response of Jesus saying, woman, what is this? have to do with me. My hour has not come yet. It's not my time yet. He didn't tell her no. He didn't tell her no. He only pointed out that the fullness of his purpose had not arrived. So Mary, realizing that he has not said no and that he hadn't say, said he wouldn't do anything about the crisis, she continues on in verse 5. She looks to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you to do. So it's obvious that Mary has some sort of position at this wedding celebration. She is concerned about the, the wine supply and the fact that they have run out. She wants to make sure something is done about it, and the servants take instruction for it from her. I mean, if she didn't have something to do with this wedding, the servants aren't just going to say, okay, when she says, hey, go do whatever my son tells you to. He's going to fix this. They're going to say, who are you? But she tells them, and the servants listen to her. This gives more weight to the viewpoint that this had to have been someone close to Jesus' earthly family. And we see also at the end of the section, it's not just Jesus and Mary and his disciples at this wedding, but his brothers are there with him also, which meant the eventual disciple James would have also been there. So Mary says, do whatever Jesus says. What a statement. Let's think about that for a minute. It's, it's a simple statement. Do whatever he tells you. It's simple, but it's not easy. For we will see in a moment that the request of Jesus 
that he makes to these servants is it's a little strange. It's a little strange, but we see a principle here. Do whatever Jesus tells you to do. We have the instructions of Jesus contained in this book. He tells us what to do. It's simple instructions, but they're not easy instructions. It's simple. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Follow the commands. It's a simple formula, but it's a hard road to walk in our sinful nature. We should do whatever He tells us to do. The way of Christ, it seems foreign to us in our natural state. It's not the way we would do things. I'm sure these servants, knowing that they needed more wine, they probably wouldn't have thought, hey, you know what, let's go fill these jars with water and then let's take that to the the bridegroom and hope they don't realize that this isn't wine. They would have wanted to figure out where the nearest wine source was. That's the way man would think. That's the way I would have thought. Let's, Let's go to the local store and let's get some more wine, right? But that's not how Jesus thought. He knew that he had a perfect and divine plan that he was about to demonstrate using his great power. So what was the instruction Jesus gave to these servants in verse 6? Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. So we have six very large jars, 20 to 30 gallons each. If my math is correct, that's anywhere from 120 to 180 gallons of capacity. That's, that's not a small amount of water. We're talking about a lot of water here. You know, I think when my basement floods with 70 gallons, that that's a lot of water. And this is a lot more than that. It's, it's a lot of water. And these jars, it says, they were there for the Jewish rites of purification. Now, what are the Jewish rites of purification? Well, let's look at the book of Mark, chapter 7. Mark, chapter 7, starting in verse 1, it says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is to say, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. There are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So the Jews, they they operated under this very strict adherence to these purification laws and ordinances. Some of these were found in the Levitical law in the Old Testament where you know, if you uh, were wanted to perform certain functions, you had to wear certain types of clothes. You couldn't wear just anything. If you had uh, certain sicknesses, you actually had to go outside of the town. If you had a discharge, you had to go outside of the town. You were declared unclean. Nobody could touch you. Nobody could be around you. But then here in the New Testament era, these Pharisees, they're taking this to a whole nother level to where you have to wash Everything, all the time. So they've got these big jars ready for the Jewish purification rites to wash everything. Remember, these people are going to be here for a week or more. They're going to be eating a lot. They're going to be drinking a lot. They're going to be doing all sorts of things. They're going to be around each other. You've got you to wash. You've got to be clean. And so since there was so much of this going on, they had these six massive stone jars. And Jesus tells the servants, I want you to fill these jars up with water. Now remember, we're talking about at least 
120 gallons of water. And it says that they filled these jars to the brim. The fact that these, these jars were so massive, it shows us really truly the magnitude of what Jesus is about to accomplish by turning this water into wine. And the servants, they, they didn't hesitate. I'm sure this probably sounded a little strange to them, like I said, but they didn't hesitate. They did what they were told. They get the water, they fill the jars to the brim, and Jesus says, I want you to draw this water out of the jar, and I want you to take it to the master of the feast and serve it to him. Okay. Now at this point, they've got to be asking themselves some questions. Draw this water out and take it to the master of the feast. We have 120 gallons of water here, and you want us to take it to the master of the feast. Okay, we're going to be fired. We are going to be a laughingstock. We are going to make this bad situation worse for the bridegroom. But if there was any of that going on in the minds of these servants, they didn't show it because they didn't hesitate. They didn't voice it. They didn't show it. They did what he said. They took the water and they gave it to the master of the feast. How often do we hesitate? How often do we have doubts about what God is telling us to do? Do we not trust the Savior? Do we not trust God enough to know what He is doing and how He's going to accomplish His will? Remember, it's His His will. It's not ours. At this point, the servants probably didn't even know that Jesus was who He was. Remember, Jesus, He had revealed Himself to the disciples over in Bethsaida, that's, that's three days away. And before that, John was declaring him in Bethany, which was another day away from that, so a four days journey to where they were now. News didn't travel that fast in the first century. They didn't have Twitter. They didn't have Facebook. They didn't have Fox News, local news, radio. They didn't have all of that. So they didn't know who Jesus was at this point. But they did what he said. They obeyed. Even if there are doubts in our minds about what Christ is asking us to do because it seems strange or foreign to us, we should obey and do as we're told. So the servants there, now taking this water that's now been turned into wine miraculously, they take it to the master of the feast and they serve it to him for testing. And in verse 9 it says this, When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water did know. The master of the feast called to the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you, you've kept the good wine until now. So we have the master of the feast drinking this wine that Jesus has now created, and I'll talk more about that in a moment. But notice what he said about the wine he didn't ask where they got the wine. He didn't question that. He just said, this is the best wine. Now, I want to look here for just a minute, as I, I mentioned briefly earlier, because there's a lot of people who get hang-ups on this passage. And they try to explain things away because of cultural stigmas in America about drinking. Um, and so they try to uh, explain away this passage and say, well, they're not really drinking wine, they're drinking grape juice. This was not grape juice. This was wine. This was actual alcohol. The Greek word here literally means fermented juice. 
there's no chance that this was just regular grape juice. So I want to say first, there is nothing wrong about personal convictions about drinking alcohol. It is fine to abstain from alcohol, and we can show from Scripture that that is actually a desirable thing to do. But all Scripture says is, do not be drunk. That's what it says. So we need to make sure that when we are talking about things, that we, we not try to twist the biblical text by trying to make things mean something other than what they actually do just to fit our cultural positions today. Okay, We just need to make sure that we're not twisting the biblical text to make things fit current day culture. We need to be honest and tackle things head on. But they have, they have this wine now, and it's the best wine. The normal practice would have been to give out the best wine at the beginning. Now remember these, these celebrations, they're a week or two long. And so they, they would have given out uh, good wine at the beginning, but they couldn't give out this fine, good wine the entire week. They would have gone bankrupt. So they give good stuff out first, and then they move to cheaper quality wine. But the Master of Feast is amazed because this is the best wine he's ever tasted. It's perfect. And should we have expected anything less? The signs in John's Gospel, after all, are to show Christ's power over certain things. And the first sign at the wedding of Cana, this is to show Jesus' power over creation. The turning water into wine is to show Jesus' power over creation. We already know He created everything. We look at two passages here. We already saw in John 1, Verses 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Everything was made through Him. Everything. And Paul writes about this in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. It says this, He, that's Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him were all things created in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile Himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. All things. Not just things here, but things in heaven, the unseen, the seen. I don't know of anything that exists that wasn't included in that list, because there isn't anything that's not included in that list. They were all made by him, through him, and for him. And Paul drives this home in Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. So here back in John two we now see this water turned into wine. Now to make wine you need grapes or some other fruit that can have juice that will ferment. Christ didn't have anything like that here that would supply that, that requirement. He literally created something out of nothing. He brought in something that was not present and made it. So we see his power over creation. This is just 
Just like it was in Genesis 1, all he had to do was speak, and it pops up. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God said, let there be light, and guess what? There was light. He said, let there be animals, and guess what? There was animals. He said, let there be water, there's water. That's all he has to do. He just wants to will it into being, and it's there. And that's exactly what he does here. Creates wine out of nothing and adds it to the water. And of course, we go back, as we've talked about several times in our times together, in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, where we see John write the purpose of this book. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So, we're going to be looking as we go through John about these eight signs specifically, but John writes that Jesus did way more than these. And in the next chapter in 21, he says that, um, in fact, if, if all of these things had been written, he doesn't believe that the books of the world could contain them. He did so much. This was a constant with Christ. It was a staple of his ministry, a constant reminder and proving of who he was, what his purpose was here, what his authority was. And John writes these things so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ. Just here in the first chapter and a half that we've been through, we've seen more than enough evidence of this fact. We've seen his power. We've seen his purpose. We've seen prophecies fulfilled. And we are just getting started. So that you may believe and that by that belief you may have life in his name. What a wonderful truth that is this evening. As I said last week, Christ makes no secrets about who he is. If they were paying attention, if they cared to know, they would know exactly who he was. And as we read this today, we know exactly who he was and continues to be. He is the Christ. He is the Savior. And this brings us to our last two verses tonight here in the first section of chapter 2, verse 11, says this. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, manifested his glory, and the disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This manifested his glory. It caused his glory to become known to those who knew that he was the one that provided the wine that day out of the six massive jars of water. And we, when we see his glory in, in the Gospels referring to an attribute of Christ, what it is talking about is always his divine being, his power, his radiance, his beauty as the second person of the Trinity, his authority. And in each one of the signs that we see in John's Gospel, the first one here in chapter 2, he shows his divine power. What a mighty God we serve. It says in the second part of verse 11, his disciples believed in him. Now John knew that as he was writing this, that he could write these things so that we would believe because these things caused him and the disciples to believe first. This is his personal testimony that he's writing. He's giving an account for the hope that lies within him as Paul writes. He got to see these things firsthand. And he knew the power that it held over him and the power that these things would surely hold over anyone who read it and truly had ears to hear 
exactly what was going on and truly able to understand. The power that Christ has, the power that he holds and displays to us should grip us with fear and trembling. We should be in awe of the Savior. We should, when we read about who he is and what he has done and what he can and will do, it should cause us to stop and fall on our knees and worship him. Everything around us, every person, every plant, every animal, every star, everything we see, things that we don't see, Christ made that. And he came to live on this earth to die for a sinful people who rebelled against him and he would die so that they might have life. And we are not worthy of that. He does not love us because of who we are. We are wicked. We are sinful creatures who rebel against God. He does not love us because of who we are. He only loves us because of who He is. The last verse in this section says they went down to Capernaum. And remember last week we said that this was the place where Peter made his home and he went there with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. And I could only imagine the conversations that they would have had on this 25-mile journey to Capernaum from Cana. Unfortunately, those conversations were not recorded for us. Perhaps nothing was said. Perhaps the disciples were in so much awe about what had just happened, they didn't know what to say. We, we don't know. But it must have been special. We know it was special to see the handiwork of God himself put out right there before him. You know, they would have known what Genesis said. They would have studied the law. They would have known that all God has to do is speak, and they just saw it happen right before their very eyes, what they read in the scriptures from so many years before. There are a few things that I want us to take away tonight as we begin to draw to a close, and the first is this. We need to be ready. We need to be ready when Jesus calls us to do something, to stand at the ready to take orders. The servants, they did exactly what they were told to do. And something great happened as a result. What is Christ telling you to do tonight? You know, earlier today, Brother Paul, when he was preaching this morning, he talked about the need to be doing something for God. What is God calling you to do today? Something great is waiting on the other side. And it doesn't mean it's going to be something as spectacular as all of a sudden 180 gallons of wine pop up out of water. But it's great for the work of God's kingdom. And there is nothing greater than that. If we can somehow expand the kingdom of God, there is no greater miracle than that. So we need to be ready. Second, we need to be obedient. It's not just enough to be ready. I can, I can be ready, but if the servants have been ready and, and then scoff because you want us to fill these jars up with water, no, we're not doing that. That's dumb. Then we wouldn't have had this great example that we had tonight. But because they were obedient, they got to be part of that great work. They got to be part of that miracle. We need to obey what God is asking us to do, no matter how strange or bizarre or crazy in our minds it may seem. 
We need to obey that call of God. And finally, we need to be awestruck. We need to be in awe of our Creator, the one who made everything and has revealed Himself to us, died for us, came back to life for us, intercedes for us, and made Himself known to us to call us His own. And this is, this is just the beginning. This is just, we're just getting started in John. Christ's public ministry will continue, and we will see the clashes with the Pharisees and other Jewish leaders as we continue next week in chapter 2. But for tonight, let us just pause and be amazed at the power of Christ, His power and authority over creation, His power and authority over our lives, over those around us, over our enemies, that He has everything in the palm of His hand under control. There's no surprises with Him. And let us stand ready to do His work, whatever that may be. Let's pray. Father, we just thank You for Your Word. We thank You for what it is that You've done, that You've given us, that we may know that You are who You say You are. And that You came down for a people as wretched as us to save us when we did not deserve to be saved. Let us never forget that and let us know what your perfect will is that we may obey it and do great things for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.